Welcome everybody to this uh, Lakatosh Award 2010 lecture. I'll explain that a bit later on. Um, it's a great pleasure uh, for me to be introducing Peter Godfrey Smith. Uh, I will explain why it's the 2010, and that's not a mistake, uh, and also more details about the Lakatosh Award and uh, the, uh, the competition this year resulting in Peter's book, Darwinian Populations, winning it at the reception which will follow this lecture uh, just outside, uh, and to which you're all invited. Uh, so uh, just at this stage, what, I, what I'll do is just introduce, uh, introduce Peter, not say anything about his very fine book that will be reserved for later. So uh, Peter uh, first graduated from the University of Sydney and then went to the US to do his PhD at the University of California, San Diego with Philip Kitcher. Uh, he then followed in some very eminent footsteps at Stanford when uh, Nancy Cartwright left Stanford to uh, uh, come to LSE, then the job that was vacated was uh, taken by Peter. Uh, he taught at Stanford for some years, then had joint appointment at ANU and Harvard, and since 2006 has been uh, exclusively at Harvard. He's written widely in the philosophy of mind, including a book called Complexity and the Function of Mind in Nature in 1996, on a whole range of topics from general philosophy of science, and including a very fine, I think, introductory book to philosophy of science called Theory and Reality, published in 2003. And he's written as well on pragmatism, in particular uh, the thought of John Dewey. Uh, but he is perhaps best known for his extensive work in the philosophy of biology, and of course it's in that area that he, he wrote his prize-winning book, and it's on this topic, of course, that he will speak tonight under the title The Evolution of the Individual. So please welcome uh, Peter Godfrey-Smith. Thanks very much, John. Sometimes themes can be found in common across very different systems in which change occurs. Imre Lakatos developed a theory of change in science and one involving entities visible at different levels. There are theories defended at particular times and there are also research programs which are larger units that bundle together a sequence of related theories within which many scientists may work. So research programs for Lakatos are competing higher level units within a scientific field. And scientific change involves change within research programs and change in the ensemble of research programs present at a time where some will be growing, some shrinking, some progressing and some degenerating. These are also themes in biological evolution. Recent biology has often found itself dealing with the relationship between change in some level of collective entities, such as organisms like us, and change at a lower level, which might be the level of cells, genes, or other evolving parts. That work is continuous with an older discussion, one that arose when biological evolution was no more than a mere speculation around the beginning of the 19th century. And the question there was, what is the living individual? What is the basic unit of life or the basic unit of living organization. Questions like this were pursued by people like Goethe, Erasmus Darwin, the grandfather of Charles, of Charles, and many others. Initially, it was plants, especially, that were seen to raise these problems, and then newly described marine animals with strange life cycles. 
The discussion was influenced by the rise of the cell theory in the early 19th century, but some writers were looking for individuals well below the level of the cell. So in the 1850s, the botanist Alexander Brown surveyed ideas about the vegetable individual, and these included speculations about tiny agents present in every living thing, uh, little sentient granules inhabiting uh, what were called the secret halls of the bark palaces that we call plants, where they silently hold their dances and celebrate their orgies. <laughs> so the orgiastic granule was the precursor of the selfish gene. <laughs> Julian Huxley, in the early 20th century, took an evolutionary approach. So Huxley searched for what he called the movement of individuality in the process of evolution. Huxley also had a progressivist view, and he saw evolution as heading towards what he called the perfect individual. In the final paragraph of his 1911 book, Huxley co connected biological evolution to the evolution of the state, which he saw as presently the most unwieldy of individuals, but one that was huge with possibility as he saw it. I think it's possible that Julian's headlong optimism on these questions had some influence on his younger brother, Aldous Huxley's more pessimistic view of the evolving state in the novel Brave New World. These somewhat grand scale discussions also have a connection to more practical work in biology. So evolutionary biology makes use of various counting operations. It's a counting science and counts are affected by assumptions about individuality. The basic concepts in evolutionary theory were fashioned while thinking about organisms where individuality is easy to think about. Organisms like us, pigeons, and fruit flies. When you extend to life forms that are further from us, problems arise, so let's, let's look at some of these. Animals like us have fairly clear boundaries in both space and time. So if we ask how many people that are in this room, it is easy in principle to say. But all it takes is a move to ordinary plants, plants like oaks and strawberries, for things to get more difficult. One problem here is an uncertain relationship between growth and reproduction. So reproduction is tied to individuality. Reproduction is making a new individual, whereas growth is making more of the same. Many plants make what look, at least, like new plants by growing them directly from the old. So strawberries do this by sending off above-ground runners. In an aspen grove, thousands of apparently distinct trees can be united by a root system from which they all grew. Some may uh, have become physically disconnected, whereas others remain connected. So are these cases where there is growth of a pre-existing individual or asexual reproduction, reproduction by one parent and the creation of a new individual? Can we say whatever we like? Does it matter which one we say? Now one way to impose order is to say that in all these cases, asexual reproduction is merely the growth of the same individual. A view of that kind was developed in the 19th century by Thomas Huxley, the grandfather of Julian and Aldous, and a modern version was vividly expressed by Daniel Jansen in a famous 1977 paper called What are Dandelions and Aphids? So both dandelions and aphids alternate between sexual and asexual reproduction, where asexual reproduction in both cases involves making an egg that is a genetic copy of the mother. And Jansen argued that from an evolutionary point of view, a single dandelion 
is not the visible single flower, but an enormous scattered object with many small parts that have each grown from these asexually reproduced eggs. So an individual dandelion on this view can be as large as an oak tree, though it has a very different shape. Jansen said that from this point of view, a dandelion is a very large tree with no investment in trunk, branches, or perennial roots. <laughs> so on this view, whenever a living thing sends out material in any size or form that is genetically identical with the old, that is the continuation and growth of the same individual. If we follow this line, we are led to recognize all sorts of strange, scattered, um, strange-shaped individuals in the world. The largest known aspen stand, which is in Utah, is made of tens of thousands of stems and is known as the trembling giant. A single fungus was discovered in the American Midwest, a huge network beneath the soil that may be even bigger. This is known less grandly as the humongous fungus. <laughs> and these objects are thousands of years old. Within the animal kingdom, on a much smaller scale, there is the case of marmosets. These little monkeys are typically born as twins, where two fertilization events within the mother result in two animals. But each marmoset-shaped object, like this, mixes cells from each of the two fertilization events. A different set of problems about individuality is raised by what we can call collective entities, groups of living things that are in some ways like organisms or individuals of their own, even though they are also groups. So problem cases here include ant and bee colonies and also lichens. So each lichen is a close association between a fungus and a group of algae. Now sometimes, clearly, these collective entities can be living individuals in their own right. So we humans are collections of cells. In other cases, it seems that the collective does not count as a biological individual in its own right, but is just a group of lower level ones. So you might think about a buffalo herd or a school of fish. Now it's possible in response to this to try to steer a path through all the cases and constraints and try to find the true biological individuals. It's also possible to take a step back. So perhaps there are all sorts of things that might be called individuals here relevant for different purposes. So take ordinary monozygotic human twins. Are these two individuals or one? They clearly deserve two votes in elections, but perhaps we should see them as a single unit in some other sense and in certain other contexts. So the message of all this might be that we should draw back from the attempt to give a substantive theory of individuality. In the 19th century, when this all started, there was a great deal of philosophical baggage going along with ideas about individuality, in part because life itself was so poorly understood. Now once that historical context is gone, questions about individuality can be treated in a much more relaxed way. So we might say just that a biological individual is just any object that some part of biology recognizes as worth talking about. It might be an organism, it might be a part of an organism, it might be a larger thing like a colony or an ec ecological system, and there are no most fundamental, there are no fundamental or most real individuals in biology. I think that's a reasonable attitude in many ways, but it's possible to look for a theory that takes more of an interest in the idea of individuality. So one thing that evolution does is create new kinds of objects, 
things which can be counted and set apart from their surroundings. These objects keep recurring and they persist as matter passes in and out of living systems. Now, building these things is not the only thing that evolution does. It also does some, some things that are, in a sense, the opposite. But it's one thing that evolution does. And to understand how this works is to understand the evolution of individuals in a sense that's not quite as inflated as some of the old discussions, but a sense that goes beyond saying that biological individuals are just whatever biologists find it useful to talk about. So that's what I'll be doing today. And when, I, when we follow this path, I think we find at least two categories that have a special status, two kinds of individuals with a particular set of relationships between them. Okay, the starting point on this path is evolution by natural selection. What is evolution by natural selection and what is required for it? In 1970, the biologist Richard Lewinton described natural selection by giving a recipe with three ingredients. He said that natural selection will take place in any collection of entities where there is variation, heredity, and differences in reproductive success. Now, I think of that summary as basically right. Any collection that has these features has what it takes to evolve by natural selection. So we can call any collection that has those features a Darwinian population, and any member of such a collection a Darwinian individual. Now, a summary like this takes some things for granted. It assumes we can recognize a population, a collection of distinct things, and also that we can recognize these objects as connected by parent-offspring relations. This is assumed in the idea of heredity. Uh, that's an answer to the question, are parents similar to their offspring? And also assumed in the idea of reproductive success. Uh, does this individual have more offspring than that one? Now, for organisms like us, as I said, applying those concepts is easy. Once we extend to other cases, we find problems. But now at least we know more about what to look for. The things that matter here are things that can reproduce. So next we should look more closely at the idea of reproduction. We can start on this problem, I think, with just a common sense analysis, uh, just a bit of conceptual, uh, conceptual analysis. Reproduction involves the production of new individuals which are of the same kind as their parents. So reproduction is different from growth, different from the appearance of individuals without parents, and different from the production of things of the wrong kind, such as waste and artifacts. Now, some kind of reproduction, some kind of multiplication or making more is needed ahead of time for any Darwinian process to occur. But it can be a very rudimentary version that's present at the start, one that does not look much like cases that we're familiar with now, and one in which reproduction is not well distinguished from other things. So the similarity of parent and offspring can be low, the boundary between them can be unclear, and paternity uncertain and diffuse. From these simple beginnings, rudimentary forms of reproduction, forms of reproduction are themselves evolutionary products, and as new kinds of reproduction evolve, different kinds of evolutionary processes become possible. Now, my next step is to break some things down, to break reproduction down into several distinct kinds or modes. As I see it, the living world contains three different kinds of reproduction, three different kinds of reproducing entities. I call these simple, scaffolded, and collective reproducers. 
The paradigm cases of simple reproducers are cells, especially bacterial cells. A cell can make more things like itself, using its own machinery, and a cell is not made out of smaller parts that can do the same thing. Smaller parts that can make more things like themselves using their own machinery. If something can reproduce but does contain things that can reproduce in that sense themselves, then it's a collective reproducer. The paradigm of a collective reproducer is an organism like you or I. So people reproduce, making more people, but we also contain cells which are simple reproducers. And our reproduction is organized cell-level reproduction. So there are simple reproducers and, and collections of reproducers that themselves reproduce. Simple reproducers need not be the smallest reproducing entities in a hierarchy of parts and wholes, however. There are also what I called scaffolded reproducers. These are objects that get reproduced um, as part of the reproduction of some larger thing or that are made by some other object. They don't contain the machinery for their own reproduction. Their reproduction is dependent on scaffolding of some kind that's external to them. My use of the idea of scaffolding in this context is derived from a related use by Kim Sterelny in his book Thought in a Hostile World, which won the Lakatosh Award some years ago. Paradigm cases of scaffolded reproducers are viruses, which induce cells to make copies of them, and the chromosomes and genes within our own cells. So simple, collective, and scaffolded reproducers. What I'll do next is take a closer look at collective reproduction. So when is a group of reproducing objects a reproducer in its own right? Now here I think we can start with a very permissive attitude. Uh, organisms like us, bee colonies, buffalo herds, lichens, all give rise to more of themselves. In a loose sense, it's okay to call all of these cases of reproduction. But they're not all on a par from an evolutionary point of view. It's possible to find some features of collectives which distinguish what I would call the clear or the paradigm cases of reproduction from the more marginal ones. Three features can be used to make this distinction. All of them come in degrees, and I symbolize them with capital letters. The first is B, which stands for bottleneck. So a bottleneck is a narrowing that marks a divide between the generations. This narrowing is often to a single cell, as in the case of humans, but it's a matter of degree. There are narrower and less narrow bottlenecks. B matches, in an intuitive way, the idea of a fresh start at the beginning of life. But it's also important from the standpoint of evolutionary theory itself. Because a bottleneck forces the processes of growth and development to begin anew, a small change in the initial stage can have a great number of downstream effects. So when a large organism like us starts life small and simple, it creates a window of opportunity for wholesale reorganization and change. Now this point was uh, originally due to John Bonner and has been discussed in detail also by Richard Dawkins. The second parameter is symbolized with G, which stands for germline. So G measures the degree of reproductive specialization in a collective. When G is high, many parts of a collective are unable to become the basis for a new collective of the same kind. So in mammals like us, again, only a small proportion of cells in our bodies can give rise to a whole new organism, 
by natural processes, and those cells are sequestered for the production of sex cells at an early stage. Our other cells, somatic cells, can reproduce at the cell level. They can make more cells, but they cannot naturally give rise to a new human being. The role of G here is also illustrated by the eusocial insects, such as honeybees. Here there are colonies where the queen reproduces, along with the male drones, and the female workers do not. In other insects, including many other bees, there's no reproductive division of labor. So this divide helps us to understand the distinction between a case where there's a group of insects who happen to live together and cases where a colony counts as a reproductive unit in its own right. The third parameter is I, which stands for integration of the collective in an overall sense. Uh, this involves a general division of labor, aside from that seen in G, the mutual dependence of parts, and the maintenance of some kind of boundary between a collective and what's outside it. I argue that clear cases of collective reproduction, genuine reproduction by collectives, are associated with high scores on all these features, and marginal cases are associated with low scores. There are lots of intermediate and partial cases, though, so the situation can be represented using a space. Now, I won't go through all the cases here. I'll just mention a couple. So take an oak tree growing from an acorn. This is a very integrated system, and life is starting here from a single fertilized egg cell. So it's a case where you have a case of reproduction with a high score on I and also a high score on B. But oaks, uh, along with other plants of that kind, have less division of reproductive labor than us. So the oak has an intermediate score with respect to G, reproductive specialization. A sponge has even less again, uh, because nearly any piece of a sponge that's broken off can grow into a new sponge. Bee colonies, which I mentioned earlier, can also vary in these ways. So here I've just given a two-dimensional representation of part of the space. So honeybee colonies are very integrated in general. They have the bee dance organizing foraging, for example. And honeybees also have a reproductive division of labor that is sharper than what is seen in, other, in many other kinds of bees. Not sharper than what's seen in bumblebees, uh, but they are a less integrated colony in general. So here we see a transition between a mere collection of reproducing things in certain kinds of bees and a collective reproducer the colony in honeybees. Now using this analysis, let's go back and think about some of the problems discussed before. So Daniel Jansen argued that in plants and many other organisms, asexual propagation is not reproduction. But some asexual reproduction must count uh, in bacteria, for example, surely. So does Jansen mean that only in collectives uh, reproduction must be sexual? If so, why should that be? Or perhaps Jansen means that in things that can have sex, reproduction must be sexual. Then there's a problem with the fact that many organisms use sex only very occasionally. Uh, so Jansen's example, one of his two examples, was the case of aphids, the little insects that eat crops. These have a cycle of sexual and asexual reproduction, and the cycle is tied to the seasons. So aphids reject sex when times are good and use sex when the summer ends. And in Jansen's interpretation, a big scattered aphid individual 
grows all through the summer, and then finally reproduces at the end of it by means of sex. But as aphids have moved into warmer climates, they have in some cases reduced the role of sex, perhaps even to zero. So in Arizona, where it's summer just about all the time, aphids go on for generation after generation in an asexual way. So Jansen would have to say that this is all just the indefinite growth of a few huge organisms. And I th there I think it's, it's, that's not so. It's, that's not how to think about the aphids. The aphid lines can evolve. They can locally adapt. Mutations will arise in one but not another. And some will do better than others. So asexual reproduction in aphids is reproduction in the sense that matters to evolution. That judgment makes sense within the spatial framework. So in asexual reproduction by aphids, there are high values of B, G, and I. In asexual reproduction in aspen trees, which I also discussed earlier, there is less B, less of a bottleneck, and less G, less reproductive specialization. The new tree in an aspen grove comes from an underground runner, not from a seed. So that's an in-between case. There's a medium level of B, medium G, but an aspen is a highly integrated system, so high level of I. So that's somewhat like reproduction, somewhat like production of a new individual, and somewhat like growth of an old. So a treatment of one kind of individual here comes from a view about how evolution works. Many things have the basic features required to take part in Darwinian change. We do, our cells do, and our genes within our cells do. Various things also approximate meeting these requirements. They are partial or marginal cases. So they'll behave in a way that has some connection to a Darwinian pattern. One thing that evolution does is produce new things that pass the test. New things can enter into the Darwinian pattern of change. As one Darwinian population evolves, it can give rise to whole new kinds of Darwinian individuals. These gradually come into focus. These new individuals include things like us, which came into focus as the cells that make up animals changed how they behave. Darwinian individuals can also go out of focus. They can lose their Darwinian characteristics. Once organized animals like ourselves exist, our cells do not stop varying, reproducing, and so on. But as collectives like us come into focus, the smaller parts that gave rise to them have their evolutionary activities partly suppressed, partly curtailed. So the evolution of new individuals partly de-Darwinizes the old ones that make them up. Ellen Clark has recently argued that one thing that happens with the formation of new individuals is the opposite of this de-Darwinization. She thinks that in some collectives you have an encouragement of the independent evolutionary activities of parts. And I can see that there are some cases like this. The human immune system, in fact, works like that. It works by the encouraging within our bodies of a low-level Darwinian process. But I think that in general and in the main, the rule is that as collectives become more like genuine Darwinian individuals, they de-Darwinize their parts. OK, I've been discussing how collectives become Darwinian individuals. One way to look at this, which may have occurred to you, is that they can become organisms, or more like organisms. So it's often been tempting to see a honeybee colony as somewhat like an organism. And some of the problems here seem to be linked to the concept of an organism. Now that's true. 
But the connection is not as simple as saying that becoming a genuine collective reproducer is becoming an organism. The connection is more complicated than that, and organisms have their own role in the story. Okay, so now I'll talk for a while about organisms. I'm going to use a quite traditional view of organisms, and one that's not tied to evolutionary theory. And this can be called a metabolic view of organisms. Organisms are systems comprised of diverse parts that work together to maintain the system's structure, despite the turnover of material. And they do so by making use of sources of energy and other resources from their environment. So organisms, in this sense, can have any history. Even reproduction is optional. An organism might persist on and on without making any more individuals. So this is a view in which organisms are essentially persisters, systems that use energy to resist the forces of decay and only contingently things that reproduce. Now, in the previous section of this talk, Darwinian individuals, my first category, were understood in a gradient way. There are clearer and more marginal cases. The same is true of organisms. So human beings and other mammals are clear cases of organisms. The Portuguese man of war has long been considered a questionable case, perhaps a colony of attached organisms rather than a single organism. But talk of degree of organismality, an awkward term, but I think grammatically quite good here, would be better than talk of whether something is or is not an organism. Even thinking in terms of a single scale is probably too simple because there may be several dimensions of variation. So the extent of cooperation between the parts is one important dimension. A different one is the system's geometry. So some collaborations, some collections of parts do not form units but form networks that extend without boundaries where each member interacts with its neighbours but not with its neighbours' neighbours and nothing unites the parts into a single system. In the case of Darwinian individuals, we also faced questions about collectives. So uh, there can be Darwinian individuals within Darwinian individuals. There can be Darwinian individuals making up other Darwinian individuals, even though collectives tend to partly de-Darwinize their parts. Now, the same sort of question arises here. Can there be organisms that are parts of other organisms? Now, here I do not mean just that one or can one organism be found within the boundaries, the spatial boundaries of another, because obviously that's true. I mean, rather, can one organism be one of the parts that makes the larger system into an organism in its own right? So a kind of exclusion principle is possible here. In a hierarchy of parts and wholes, a person might say, if an organism is present at one level, then its parts cannot be organisms, and it cannot be a mere part of an organism. We can see where an exclusion principle would come from. So for a collective to count as an organism, cooperation and mutual dependence must exist between the parts with respect to the activity of maintaining the collective's structure. If an object at level n in the part-whole hierarchy is an organism, it must have a capacity for self-maintenance in its own right that is apparently incompatible with it being a mere part of such a system at some higher level, n plus 1. Now, I think that an exclusion principle in that strong form ought to be rejected, but the principle is onto something. The truth in the exclusion idea is that if the parts of a system have a lot of autonomy 
and can keep themselves going independently, that must reduce the degree to which the larger system counts as an organism. So this, again, shows the need for a graded concept, a concept admitting differences of degree rather than a yes or no treatment. The idea of an organism, unlike that of a Darwinian individual, is an old folk biological concept that's being pressed here into a scientific role. And this is a place, I think, where the intuitive concept of an organism, uh, which makes being an organism a yes or no matter, has a shape that is, does not quite fit with biological reality. Okay, I've talked about Darwinian individuals and about organisms, and next I'll talk about the relations between the two categories. So here, here is the basic picture. So the basic picture is that many things are both Darwinian individuals and organisms, and they are found in the intersection part of the diagram. But there's room for, and probably ought to be, outliers on both the left and right-hand sides. And with this picture in place, I think we can start to see why earlier discussions of individuality in this area have been so difficult. I think the discussions have been pulled to and fro by two different roles, both of which are real, but which are somewhat different and capture different cases. So firstly, let's talk about the intersection. So many familiar things are both organisms and Darwinian individuals. Fruit flies are examples. The intersection here, the category of things that are both, exists because Darwinian processes are what give rise to organisms. They are how organisms come to be. Now, there's a complication with that simple claim that we'll talk about in a moment, but the general picture is that organisms in a world like ours will be embedded within Darwinian populations. And as a consequence, they will be able to reproduce, to multiply. This link to Darwinian processes also leads to organisms doing things that are self-destructive. Organisms sometimes allow their mates or their children to eat them, literally or metaphorically. Darwinian processes favor self-maintenance some of the time, but may also favor self-destruction in the course of reproduction. So some things are both organisms and Darwinian individuals. Other things are Darwinian individuals, but not organisms. The most important examples here are what I referred to earlier as scaffolded reproducers, things that can reproduce but by means of machinery which is external to them. These include viruses such as HIV, which evolved despite having no metabolic capacity of their own. Chromosomes and cells are in, sorry, chromosomes and genes are here too. So reproduction in cells includes the cell copying a chromosome, copying, sorry, in the bacterial case, a single chromosome, in our case, many chromosomes. Because of this, chromosomes and the genes within them have their own parent-offspring relations. So they are Darwinian individuals, but nothing like organisms. Though chromosomes and genes are dependent on cells and organisms for their own reproduction, they can acquire an evolutionary path of their own which may include the evolution of capacities that are detrimental to the cells and organisms on which they rely. So scaffolded reproducers cannot acquire a life of their own, but they can have their own evolutionary path. That's because genetic material can be copied and passed on independently of a cell's reproduction, and also because of the invention of sex. So sex scrambles genetic material and allows one piece of a genome to be passed on while other parts are not. 
Some simple reproducers are also in this category. Cells within your body are so dependent on other cells that they're not close to being organisms really in their own right, but they're not so far from organisms as are chromosomes, viruses, and genes. Thirdly, the far left-hand side. Some organisms are not Darwinian individuals. This is the more surprising category and one that's coming into view with, with very new work in biology. Firstly, we can note and set aside some low-key or relatively unimportant cases, such as sterile casts of social insects and sterile animals such as mules. So these are organisms that are close relatives of things that are clearly Darwinian individuals. And depending on how we think about the capacity to reproduce, perhaps they are Darwinian individuals in their own right. The more important cases are certain kinds of symbiotic collectives. It's becoming clear that most or all plants or animals live in close associations with symbionts. These symbionts, these partners, are often bacteria which live in and around us. Sometimes there's a mere association. Our skins are covered in bacteria. But sometimes there is collaboration between the two sides. In a subset of those cases, it can be argued that the symbiotic partners are integrated into the metabolic system that comprises the organism. And in a further subset of those cases, they are integrated in a way that does not make the whole complex, the combination, into a Darwinian individual in its own right. So there we have a case of an organism that is not a Darwinian individual. A good case for thinking about these issues is the squid vibrio symbiosis. So you're looking, uh, it's a somewhat dark picture, but you're looking uh, eye to eye, front on, with a Hawaiian bobtail squid. The Hawaiian bobtail squid takes in a small number of bacteria of a certain kind when it's very young, during a brief window in its life. These bacteria grow into colonies within specialized places called crypts within the squid, and they form part of the squid's light organ. This organ lights up, creates illumination, in a way that provides camouflage from predators trying to see the squid from below. The, the, the shadows that the squid would otherwise cast would be cast by moonlight, because the squid hunts at night. And at the dawn of each day, most of the bacteria are expelled by the squid, and the colony regrows from the remainder, while the squid hides during the day on the sea floor. It can be argued that the squid-vibrio combination here is, that's the organism. Uh, we should see the co that, that collaboration as an organism in its own right. I'm not sure I entirely accept this, but it's a good case for thinking about the issues. If we assume that this combination is an organism, then we find that the combination does not reproduce in the sense that's relevant to being a Darwinian individual. The combinations do not form parent-offspring lineages. Uptake of bacteria by the squid does not occur from its parents or from any other particular pre-existing combinations. The bacteria are taken up from the sea. The parts of the ocean containing these squid have many more of the bacteria than other parts of the ocean. So there's a sense in which the squid are seeding the ocean for other squid when they expel excess bacteria each day. But there's no mechanism ensuring that the bacteria in you are the offspring of bacteria in your parents 
or any other particular individuals. The bacteria in you might have come from many sources, and some might have not been inside squid for many generations. So squid-vibrio combinations make more of themselves in a sense, but not in the sense that gives rise to parent-offspring lineages. The parent-offspring lines connect only the parts. They connect bacteria with bacteria and squid with squid. So the combinations are not Darwinian individuals, but maybe they are organisms. They're a kind of metabolic knotting together of reproductive lineages that remain distinct. We can compare this case, the squid vibrio case, to another famous symbiosis, the aphid buckneri symbiosis. So aphids, the curse of gardeners and farmers, make their second appearance. Many aphids contain bacterial symbionts which are carried inside specialized cells within the aphid and make, nutri make nutrients for the aphid. The association between aphids and these bacteria is as much as 250 million years old and neither partner can survive without the other. The symbionts, the bacteria, are transmitted directly from aphid mother to aphid offspring and are carried inside the aphid ovary or the embryo. So in this case, if we, if we identify the organism with the combination, the aphid plus bacteria, then these combinations do stand in parent-offspring relations to each other. The bacteria in an offspring aphid are descendants of the bacteria in the mother aphid. This is a vertically transmitted symbiont, whereas the squid vibrio case has a horizontally transmitted symbiont. And as a result of this, the aphid buckneri symbiosis, the combination, is itself a collective reproducer. So that's the total picture. If we accept that an organism can comprise a familiar animal part plus its symbionts, then there can be organisms that are multi-species units. They can be multi-kingdom units, in fact. So going back a slide, here we have the category of organisms broken into cases where uh, the organism comprises a single species and cases where the organism itself comprises partners from two different species, two different kingdoms. And in the complete diagram, we have some multi-species organisms that are themselves Darwinian individuals and some that are not. And there are also some single species organisms like the fruit fly and some Darwinian individuals that are not organisms at all. So that's the, that's the overall picture of the relationship between the two categories. Now some writers think that the far left-hand side here is a huge category which includes ourselves. So this is argued in two very interesting recent papers, one by John Dupre and Maureen O'Malley and one by Thomas Pradieu. We might be in this category because there are vast numbers of bacteria inside us and on us, especially inside our guts, and some of these are very important to the evolution and the functioning of our digestive system. Now those bacteria inside us, which are partners in a sense, are picked up from many sources. We are influenced by the ones within our parents, as in the case of the aphids, but we also pick up some from whatever is around us, as in the case of the squid. Now, Dupre and O'Malley base this argument that we are in the far left here on the role of the bacteria in metabolic cooperation. Pradieu bases it on the fact that the bacteria are tolerated by the organism's own policing mechanisms, its immune system. 
Now, these arguments, which I think are very interesting, use rather permissive criteria for inclusion within a system that's being regarded as an organism. So these human-carried symbionts are not essential to life, like the aphid Buchnera case, and they're not physically integrated uh, into the system in quite the way that we see in the squid vibrio case. Now, we might say at this point that we reach a stage where there's a free choice available, a choice to either use a permissive or a more restrictive attitude uh, when we work out what to include within an organism. That, that's one attitude. I think it would be better to say something like this, better to say that there are genuine differences of degree here. There are degrees to which there is real collaboration, degrees of physical integration of symbionts into their hosts, and degrees of mutual dependence between partners. So we can note what nature contains, then note how our existing language, our language which lumps things, divides things and simplifies, how our language operates. We note how nature produces things from time to time that push back against our categories, and then we come up with some new language if necessary. So some people argue that the, left, the far left category is a big one. Others would argue that in principle it must be a small category. If it's important for your offspring to be carrying the right microscopic partners, a mother will make vertical transmission possible if she can. Also, in cooperating systems, there is the possibility for free riding or cheating, which may subvert the collective's efforts. Vertical transmission between parent and offspring helps to maintain, the main, helps to main, helps to maintain cooperation. So if you subvert your host, if you undermine your host, the host is unable to reproduce, and your reproduction is tied to their reproduction, then your subversion will perish with the subverted host. If you can disperse horizontally, independently of the host's reproduction, then you can take advantage of a host without undermining your own efforts. So the upshot of the argument is that cooperation is more easily maintained in symbioses that have vertical transmission. Now, the squid vibrio case shows that fine-tuned cooperative symbioses can exist with horizontal transmission. On the other hand, the squid and the vibrio can live apart from each other. The aphid and their bacteria cannot survive apart. So the argument that the partners make up a single organism is stronger, I think, in the aphid case than it is in the squid case. And to some extent, at least, it seems that fusion of reproductive lineages goes with tightness of metabolic integration. So the far left-hand side category here is being squeezed, put under pressure by a kind of consolidation in which successful cooperative metabolic collaborations become Darwinian individuals. Okay. That's the picture and I'll now conclude. So I started from a discussion of evolution and reached the Darwinian individual as one kind of evolved object. Then we looked at a second, the organism. Evolution includes the origination of individuals of both kinds, where some things fall into both categories and some things fall into one category or the other. On the right-hand side, we have reproducing entities that are not organisms or organism-like. Aside from viruses, these include genes and chromosomes, which are the evolved memory and control devices of cells. And on the left-hand side, there are organism-like collectives whose parts are reproductively separate. 
The left-hand category is squeezed continually by a kind of evolutionary consolidation in which metabolic collaborations tend to become Darwinian individuals. But also on that side, Darwinian individuals are continually reaching out to form new associations and collaborations, making use of the capacities of other Darwinian individuals. So new associations are continually coming into being in the vicinity of the left, as, be, as well as being in time often pulled towards the center. Now many of these newly formed associations get no closer than the vague vicinity of the far left-hand side categories. Some of them remain loose or part-time, some of them are barely collaborations at all, some of them are cooperative but organized into networks that have no boundaries, such as the biofilms formed by many bacteria. Others, however, give rise to systems like the Vibrio and the Squid. So in the vicinity of the left-hand side of the diagram, there's a kind of to and fro in which we see both the consolidation of systems into Darwinian individuals and the reaching out of existing individuals to, towards others, forming new associations and giving up some autonomy in the process. So in closing, the great biologist William Hamilton, who was a student at the LSE, once referred to what he called the gavotte of chromosomes, the gavotte of chromosomes seen in the processes of cell division and sex. This is a great image, I think, the idea of a courtly dance tuned by evolution of joining and separating. We see some of the same thing on a much larger scale. The processes at this larger scale, the process at this larger scale is not itself an adaptation a to and fro itself tuned by evolutionary design in the way that Hamilton saw in the case of chromosomes and sex. Instead, it's the recurring upshot of masses of separate evolutionary events. But there's some of the same rhythm of sealing off and opening up, of consolidating and reaching out in the dynamic that links organisms and Darwinian individuals. So I, I guess my sort of picking up on, on, on some things you said at the end, sort of why there's pressure on this, this zone being quite small. And if I understand correctly, one implication of your account would be that squid-vibrio combinations can't evolve as such. Right. Squid can evolve, the yes. vibrios can evolve, yes. but the squid-vibrio combination cannot evolve yes. as itself. Now I, I get this, but the more I get this, the less I see the, the fact that they're tightly integrated combinations. Right, so I can see the following, right, it, say the conditions change, it becomes adaptive for the squid vibrio, you might say, uh, for the squid to be darker than, than it was before, so to emit less light. Now, one, one easy way to, to think about this is sort of that, it, the, the way it accomplishes this is by just um, picking up fewer bacteria uh, in the relevant moment so it becomes darker this way. 
But then now I'm really picking <coughs> up the squid, what the squid does, and the bacteria do whatever they do, they, they multiply and then up, and up themselves. So the squid evolves this way, fine. But now I'm starting to think, okay, well, how important is the squid-vibrio combination, what's that's doing the work? Now I'm really thinking just about the squid. So it seems like, I guess my question is, is sort of, if you could say a little bit more about why we should really, sort of why the pressure on the zone being thin doesn't make that zone sort of disappear altogether. I mean, I guess, is it, is it true that the implication is that these squid vibrio guys can't, can't evolve and isn't that odd in some sense? It's still so then calling organisms. It is, tr it is true that the squid vibrio combination can't evolve in, in its own right or as such. So it's the upshot of the evolution of uh, two of evolutionary processes in two different Darwinian populations, this, the squid and the vibrio populations. And I think that the, the main answer to your question is that I think there's good reason to regard the organism concept just as not a historical concept, it's a metabolic concept. If you just bracket history and look at the squid-vibrio combination, see what they're doing. Uh, suppose you don't know uh, whether the Vibrio are being passed vertically or horizontally. Suppose it's, it's unclear. And suppose there are two kinds of squid, some that uh, do pass the bacteria vertically and some that, pass it, some that pick it up horizontally. But you know, somewhat awkwardly, it's supposed that they wind up doing very similar things. Uh, metabolically, it needn't make much difference. Uh, and I think there's a whole set of theoretical considerations and also intuitions and uh, reasons behind forms of analysis that go with a metabolic conception of the organism that, that brackets history. Now, in, in the case you talk about, um, as you say, we can imagine a situation in which it's better for the squid-vibrio combination to become darker. And there's, a, you know, there's I guess, three ways that might happen. Uh, vibrio might do better. Sorry, Vibrio, who emit less light, might wind up in squid-vibrio combinations that get eaten less often. Squid might take up fewer bacteria that emit the same amount of light, or some combination of both. So there's all, there are several different coevolutionary possibilities. And I, I, I understand what you're saying. There's a kind of gestalt which a person can go through where once you see these things not as Darwinian individuals, the separateness suddenly becomes a bit more vivid to one's mind than it was before. But that is to take a, a historical perspective, uh, an evolutionary perspective on the system. And it's not that I think there's some factual error a person is making if they do that, but there is the viability of the metabolic concept as well. Good, can I just, just one brief sort of, uh, follow up on this? If, if that's right, then it sounds like the, the zone could be quite large, depending on how you understand sort of the metabolic interpretation of an organism. Because then sort of lots of cultures or whatever, lot large things can turn out to have sort of on some level, right, they sort of, they're self-maintaining <coughs> things that use energy from outside to, to do that. In some sense, I mean, if, right, if, I mean, maybe cultures aren't, not, not in a human culture sense, but cultures of bacterial cultures and in, in some form might, might have similar properties. Yeah. That you sort of, you look at from, from sort of in a time slice and say, oh, that's an organism, that's an organism. 
but then you might not say oh, they're not they're not Darwinian individuals in, in that sense. So you end up with a quite large group on this kind of stuff. Is that right? You may. So in in the picture. I have sharp boundaries around the organism concept, and as the, the text emphasized, I think that's not how we should think about it. Uh, so let's, let's put another case on the table. Uh, so Kim Sterelny, in his, in his review of uh, my book, uh, spent some time talking about the ant-acacia symbiosis, which is an interesting one to think about. So some acacia trees uh, grow swollen thorn-like structures that are essentially designed to provide houses for ant colonies. And the ants live in these swollen structures and vigorously protect the tree, the acacia tree, from herbivores. So if you go and start to eat the leaves, the ants will attack you. And some of the trees also make little bodies that provide food for the ants as well. And that's another kind of um, collaboration, which I think of as, uh, for several reasons, the ant-acacia combination doesn't count as an organism. <coughs> so the ant colonies come and go. Uh, they, you know, ant colonies sort of fight over the same tree. Sometimes the ants treat the trees much less kindly uh, than others. So there are some cases in which the ants sterilize the tree effectively. So the tree keeps growing more branches, but it never gets to reproduce because the ants are better off with a non-reproducing tree. So that's the kind of case I had in mind in the very last part of a talk where I talked about the diversity of collaborations, some of which make their way into sort of squid vibrio land and start to look like an organism in their own right. But there are many cases like the ant acacias, uh, which should just be seen as elsewhere within a space or a gradient. Yes, I, thank you. I, I don't use the mic because I think right. we're behind. Okay, is that working? Yeah. I mean, I, I find uh, quite attractive the relaxation of the individual concept that you're proposing in the broad sense, uh, not, not just referring to this, these two concepts. Um, but if you carry that uh, far enough, does that render meaningless the distinction between individual selection and group selection? And if it does, would that be a bad thing? I think the discussion of individual versus group selection is a bit of a mess uh, in, in certain ways. And one thing that I tr try to do is to, is to clean the whole thing up, not in a way that's particularly novel. So way back, Richard Lewinton in that paper that I mentioned from 1970, uh, when he gave his simple abstract account of what's necessary for Darwinian change, he was doing so in order to clarify the group versus individual selection debate. And what Lewinton said is something very simple, which is that for any objects at all, whether they be as small as genes or as big as ant colonies or anything in between, you ask the same questions in every case when you ask whether those things are undergoing Darwinian evolution. You ask, do they exhibit variation, heredity, and differences in reproductive success? So that means if you want to regard a, a group, a social group, or a colony, or a, an association like the lichen, if you want to regard that thing as a unit of selection, you have to uh, identify some form of reproduction that that thing engages in. And nothing less than that suffices. Now, many of the uh, very influential papers written about 
group selection, do not impose that test. So uh, last year at this time, Samir Akasha, in his talk, I'm sure, talked about some of this. And Akasha is more inclined to um, make sense of what's going on within discussions that say there can be group selection without group level reproduction. He thinks there's a decent category of group selection there. I've come to think of that just as a confusion. It was just a mistake. There was a, mis there was a, there was a forking in the road in the discussion made around the mid-70s, where up to that point, people like Lewinton had said, sure, I know what would be required for natural selection to operate on groups as units. What that would require is for groups to reproduce. And now we're going to have to say something about what group level reproduction is, and that's part of my project. In the mid-70s, people began to think that there can be a sense in which groups are units of selection that does not involve reproduction by groups. Groups were seen just as entities that make possible the reproduction of smaller things that, that make them up. And that's what I'm seeing as a, as a wrong turn. So I think the short answer to your question is, is that um, the consequences for the units of selection debate are simple and essentially the ones that Lewinton tried to assert way, way back in 1970, where the moral, the crucial idea is you apply the same tests for everything that you might regard as undergoing evolution by natural selection, variation, heredity, differences, and reproductive <coughs> success. Reproduction will be different depending on what you're looking at. Reproduction for a gene, a scaffolded reproducer, is very different from reproduction for a colony, a collective reproducer, but evolutionarily they can have a kind of equivalence. Thank you. It was just a, um, a follow-on from Armin's question. I mean, so in, in, when you were applying to him, you, I mean, you referred to the fact that the squid vibrio combination co-evolves, if you like. So that's sort of another way of thinking about the question is when, what's the boundary between co-evolution and sort of genuine in evolution of a of a single? There it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so, uh, so uh, the reason why you, you I, I take it the reason why you want to think of this as a instance of co-evolution rather than uh, organism, uh, evolution of a single organism is because of the, man, the man, manner in which the uh, viruses, the vibrio, is, is uh, taken in by the, the squid, right? So that uh, there's no direct uh, transmission of the virus from... It's, a, it's a bacteria. Bacteria. Uh, yeah. Bacteria, right. <coughs> but it, it seems, that seems to go somewhat against your sort of earlier claims about individuality the sort of notion of being, of being an individual as being something of a matter of degree here, because I mean, what you have in this case is it's true that the resemblance between, the, as it were, the parent squid vibrio <coughs> combination and the and the descendant squid vibrio combinations is murky. I mean, the, the, it's not. I mean, it's not like us now, often, but nonetheless, there is resemblance, and presumably, there's a high I mean, there's a high probability of you know the descendant squid is <coughs> the same. Uh, bacteria uh, vibrio as, as the parent one. It's, it's that idea that, I, that I'm denying. I, I don't think there are parent-offspring relationships between the combinations. So if you, let's look at, suppose you're a squid vibrio combination. Now, <laughs> the squid part of you has very definite squid parents. And the bacterial part of you has very de definite bacterial parents. But um, the bacteria in you will be a mixture from very various sources. Some of them may have come from, well, many of them may have recently come from squid, 
Vibrio combinations that were around, some of the bacteria may have just been floating in the sea indefinitely without being taken up in squid. Interestingly, the number of, of, of bacteria that begin the colonies at the start of life is surprisingly small. It's between 6 and 12. It's a tiny number of, for, for bacteria, that's a tiny number. But they'll typically, so, okay, so how would you identify parent-offspring relationships? You might say, okay, let's suppose there are 12 bacteria in you, and it might be the case that each of those 12 came, is a descendant of a bacterium in a different squid-vibrio combination. So then you might have, I guess, 14 parents. You'll have your two squid parents <laughs> and 12 squid-vibrio parents who were the, the ones that housed bacteria who were ancestors of the ones in you. Now, I agree very much with the idea that we should be thinking in terms of, of differences of degree here. And a parent-offspring relationship need not be as simple as it is with, with humans. But it's also the case that the notion of parent and offspring collapses once there are sort of dozens of individuals in the previous generation who make some partial contribution to what's present in the new generation. I think uh, this is a useful point also to think about when we, think, when we look at the application of evolutionary ideas to cultural change. Uh, so Darwinian concepts require parent-offspring relationships between tokens or instances, material particulars. I think there are some cases in culture where you have something like that, but a great many where you don't, because responsibility for a cultural item now is diffuse in a way that prevents parent-offspring relationships being identified. Dan Sperber has argued along these lines for uh, many years. So I think in both the cultural case and a case like this, well, I think in many cultural cases, and in this case, the notion of parent-offspring has sort of is collapsed because once you have too many parents, they aren't parents anymore, would be one way to put it. Can I play devil's advocate um, and, and say perhaps that if, um, if a biological system is well understood, um, does it really matter so much whether we say, well, this is an organism and, or that is an organism and um, this is a Darwinian individual, that, that, that's not a Darwinian individual. Because you gave a very good argument at the beginning of the lecture to say these categories are all a bit, a bit fluid, very hard to have precise definitions that apply to all, all cases. I think you made that, that case very well, given that um, the argument would be, what, uh, what does it really matter what categories we put things into as long as we use terms clearly and properly and consistently and are clear what we're talking about? I have sympathy with that, with that view, and in response to Armand's earlier question. So one way to put Armand's question would be to say, look, I want to use a concept of organism that has some evolutionary content, where something that has the wrong kind of evolutionary history doesn't count as an organism. And I don't think that's making any kind of factual mistake if, if, a, if a coherent framework is set up like that, which divides things differently from me, then fine. Um, that's the first point. I do think that kind of attitude it can go too far. So we do achieve understanding of the living world by means of evolutionary theory. The theory requires that certain concepts be applied to natural processes and events. The notion of parent-offspring relationship, heredity, and so on. Uh, and 
some, some ways of using those concepts will preserve the power the theory has and some ways won't. Now, there'll often be a certain amount of freedom where a person can set things up somewhat differently in the way that Armin was suggesting. But, but not, not complete freedom. And like, you know, like many people, I think that the core ideas of Darwin's theory were immensely powerful as tools for understanding the world that we live in. And achieving understanding of how exactly those ideas work, how they apply to natural systems, is both a scientific and a philosophical project. Part of what I'm trying to argue is that notions of, of partial satisfaction of criteria, locations in a space, that helps us understand the purchase that these concepts and consequently the theory has. But th that all takes a certain amount of uh, a attention to how the concepts work, and it's not compatible with a, a complete laissez-faire attitude, I think. Sorry, Dave. Sorry, that's my job. <laughs> um, so you want to define the organisms by um, cooperation and dependence. One worry I have about cooperation is that it can be um, a little bit hard to tell apart from just sort of any old interaction. In the same way that um, mutualism is hard, quite hard to tell apart from parasitism, so you get parasitisms evolving into mutualisms over time. Um, and, and so far as that is true, I think um, you know I might start to worry about what kind of interacting pairs might have to start counting as an organism, things like. Um, parasite host pairs, perhaps even um, predator-prey pairs. And as soon as you start doing that, you've moved very far away from the intuitive concept of an organism, which is supposed to be part of the motivation for having a separate category. And it makes me end up thinking, why not just treat um, cooperation and dependence as um, another um, uh, parameter, as another, why not, why not put a fourth dimension into your parameter and just say these are also things, you know, the way you, that they can increase the degree to which something is a Darwinian individual. Right, right. I, I agree there's, there's a problem there or a number of problems. Uh, so he, here's an argument that Austin Booth, who's, somewhat, who's a Harvard student who's working on these issues, runs, which, which is problematic. So in some of the recent literature on the nature of organisms, people appeal to the notion of cooperation very freely, you know, co cooperating parts. But exactly as you say, it's very hard to work out what kind of interaction counts as cooperative. Now, there's one sense we can have uh, of cooperation that has a straightforward biological grounding where it has to do with the effects <coughs> that one thing has on the fitness of another, where one, the activity of one thing increases the fitness of, of some other object. But you can only apply that when the things, the partners are things that have fitnesses, that are themselves Darwinian individuals. The notion of fitness can only be applied to things of that kind. So if you look at a cell and you want to regard a cell as a cooperating, a cooperating entity uh, where uh, you want to say that you know, the ribosomes and various enzymes and the compartment determining membranes and things like that are part of a cooperating system you are in some ways crossing your fingers a little here and, and 
betting that that notion of cooperation can be can be made more precise than it currently is. And I agree. I agree with. Uh, I agree that pressure can be put in this area. Um, beyond that, what, it's it's also true that the notion of integration, as it figures in an account of collective reproduction and hence Darwinian individuals that are collectives, it has some relationship to metabolic concepts. So as you say, there's the possibility of some awkward or complicated relationship between the metabolic and the evolutionary concepts arising, arising there as well. So I, I suppose I'm agreeing with the fact that pressure can be put where you're putting pressure. <laughs> Uh, I wonder if you could just explain how this distinction fits with the older distinction between replicators and interactors. I mean, I can see how some of it goes, but I really value the, the whole tutorial. Okay, okay. Replicators and interactors. Um, so just for those not familiar with, with the terminology, um, there's a foundational account of natural selection that I'm completely against. Um, <laughs> which uses a different pair of concepts, replicator and interactor. And the, the idea is that in any evolutionary process, there are two roles that have to be filled by something. There have to be things that replicate, where replication is copying. There have to be things that are copied, faithfully copied. And interactors are other objects which interact with the environment in a way that affects the replication of various of the replicators. So typically, the interactors will be things that house or contain the replicators. So we are interactors on this view, and our genes are replicators, and our role in evolution is to interact with our world in such a way that our genes um, have, um, that our genes are copied. Okay, so that's the replicator interactor framework. Now, the only things that are replicators that I've talked about here are genes and in some cases chromosomes. Everything else is not uh, because replication involves high fidelity, very high fidelity reproduction, copying. So human beings are not replicators because when you, when you reproduce as a human, the offspring might be similar to the parents but isn't a copy of either parent. So you'll have some replicators there and a further feature of the replicator interactor framework is that interactors may or may not form parent-offspring lineages. It's optional, as I understand it. And that I think of as a, as a problem with the framework, because it's very important whether things do or don't form parent-offspring lineages. So in a replicator interactor analysis, we are interactors because we don't copy ourselves but contain things that copy. And we are interactors that happen to form parent-offspring lineages. The squid vibrio is an interactor, and it's not something that forms parent-offspring lineages for the reasons that I've talked about. Same with, well, and the Aphid-Buchnera uh, combination will. So the, the replicator-interactor framework is a framework in which uh, many of the parent-offspring relationships that are contained in the living world are disregarded because they aren't copying, they aren't high fidelity. And consequently, there's no important distinction there. And the only important distinction is between things that are faithfully copied and things that aren't faithfully copied. 
Now, so that's how I think that set of distinctions maps onto this set of distinctions. I'm thinking of this as a good way of generalizing the core insight of the replicator interactor distinction, but without committing yourself to faithful copying or um, any of the problems that that distinction has. You're replacing it with the uh, Darwin individual organism distinction. Is that a fair way of thinking? That you generalize the way from the problems that it has, but it's a special case of uh, your instances are Darwin individuals and aren't organisms. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether accepting that would lead to trouble for me, or, or not, <laughs> or not. Uh, so let's say I do accept it if it doesn't lead to trouble. Um, in in Storelny's discussion of this framework, uh, one thing he says is that look, we already have a name for these things, interactors. Now. And this is the category that's a bit novel here, and the one that has this special evolutionary role where it's being squeezed and created simultaneously. Uh, one response I have to Sirioni is, well, those are interactors, but some of these. Uh, it's not as if the interactor concept is being used to pick out the special case here. On the replicator interactor analysis, almost everything is at most an interactor. It's a very inclusive concept. And the whole rep replicator inter interactor framework is designed to preserve the specialness of the genes as doing something that nothing else can do. The point of that old paper by Lewinton that I like so much is that it's not presenting a picture like that. Genes are doing the same thing that everything else does. It's just they're doing it in a particular way. Any species, single species line on this diagram, right? And so it's clear that you can't have a single species that's just an organism, uh, but not also a Darwinian, Darwinian individual, right? Right. Uh, and maybe that's quite obvious, right? But also you can't have a multi-species case that's just a Darwinian individual, but not also uh, an organism. And I'm, I'm wondering whether that's so obvious. You can't have a multi-species case that is just, just a Darwinian Darwin. individual and not an organism. You can have things that score. So here, the gradient nature of these concepts perhaps comes to the fore. You can have things that are much clearer Darwinian individuals than they are organisms, perhaps. Uh, what would be a good example of that? A multi-species case that has very good parent-offspring relationships and hence is a collective reproducer. It, it's, it's, got a high, it's got a bottleneck, it's got a germline, but it's not well enough integrated to be an organism. It's, it's it scores much less high on the organism criteria. I bet there's a case like that, but I can't think of it offhand. Uh, um, things like lichen, I think, are better organisms probably than Darwinian individuals. Um, that's the other way. Yeah, that's right. We want one that goes the other way. Uh, that's a good thing to think about, and I can't think of. There ought to, there, well, if there isn't, if there are no such things, 
then there ought to be an explanation for why there are no such things, and that would then be interesting. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, maybe your criteria for Darwin individual, automatically it's going to satisfy the organism if it's a multi-species. I mean, the examples you give seem to be quite simple stuff uh, with not much interaction, like the chromosome and the, and the virus uh, of Darwinian individuals that are not well, in order for something to be a Darwinian, well, the, yeah, the clear cases are things that are scaffolded reproducers and don't have a metabolism. They're things that get copied rather than copying themselves. So they're smaller than cells, uh, typically. Uh, if you had some reason to regard a pair of those, so a sort of a viral combination Actually, this is interesting. There, there, are, there are viruses and virus-like things that tend to go together. I don't know if they go together in a way that would give the parent, to give the collective or the combination a parent-offspring relationship. But that would be one place to look for to look for a case like that. What I put this slide back up here for was to note that the role of integration here sort of confounds a bit the relationship between these two categories. So I think that. Um, general integration and division of labour is a useful part of an account of collective reproducers, but of course that's exactly the kind of thing that a metabolic conception of the organism is also picking up on. So that is a, I think, an inevitable mixing to some extent of the two sets of criteria. Nice question, David. <coughs> I want to go back to Rick's question about replicators and interactors. I wanted to try something on you. One thing that came home to me reading your book is that the kind of gene-centered, selfish gene uh, program ran together two quite different ideas. Uh, one of them was in thinking about populations of individual organisms uh, in the way you do in population genetics. It's kind of best to type the organisms by genetic characteristics and your interest in the trajectory of will individuals with certain characteristics increase in the population. That's one thing you do. Yep. And there's another quite different idea. You treat genes not as the important characteristics or defined, but as uh, individuals and Darwinian populations in their own right. And then you have meiotic drive and junk DNA and so on. And those are two quite different ideas. And yep. the idea of the genes as replicators is important. Somehow runs the two together. And and now I can't think about replicators anymore. I mean, there's one reason why genes are important in the population genetics case. Another reason why they might be important when they're really being thought of as doing in populations. But they're quite different reasons for being important. Right. I'm, I'm glad you can't think of them as replicators <laughs> in, in that way anymore. That's, that's, that's uh, I think this is. This is evolution of us as, as individuals, if we think that. Um, but thinking seriously for a second, suppose there'd never been population genetics and that second, that, that first set of considerations just was, was not on the table. So suppose, um, suppose you had some kind of investigators or inquirers who weren't paying much, weren't paying any attention to the dynamics that exist at the level of organisms, but they were able to just track what individual genes, the material molecular things, were able to do over time, then they would note that uh, one 
one stretch of DNA can give rise to a new one that's a, that's a, a, a highly resembling uh, copy, well, that's a copy of it that, that closely resembles it, and that different stretches of DNA uh, vary, that they uh, have different consequences, that their properties have consequences for how often they're copied and so on. So it's not that none of those things that the replicator interactive people said about genes, uh, it's not that they aren't true, it's that, that those are just the ways in which one kind of Darwinian individual functions in the world. So replication can be used in a low-key way just to refer to high-fidelity asexual reproduction. That's a completely reasonable way of using the word replication, which brings with it none of the, none of the priorities and the concerns of the replicator interactive framework. And that, that's sort of salvageable and, and, and keepable even when, even when the rest is, is discarded. Thank you very much. I think we should, uh, first of all, let me repeat the uh, invitation to the section. Uh, but we should now thank Peter Cosby-Smith for a really excellent talk and for his